Well, good afternoon. Again, it is so great to be back together with each of you to spend some time studying in God's Word, to have the privilege to gather together and to worship Him, uh, our one and only, our true God. It is just, it's a real blessing to be able to get together with one another and, and to do this. Now, as Brother, as Brother Adam just read for us from Hebrews 11, we have this, uh, this whole list of Hebrews 11, the people who are kind of the, the hall of fame of the faith, if you will. Uh, a lot of people that have done a lot of great things. But in this passage, I wanted to focus on, on one person, and a story of which comes from, uh, or, or includes, excuse me, a, a, a lot of faith and a lot of courage, which I think are two very important aspects to Christianity today. Important aspects that we need to try and build up in our own lives uh, to have this faith and this courage to do God's will. Now, what I want, who I want to talk to you about this, this afternoon <clears throat> is Gideon and the example that Gideon sets for us. This time it was a time Israel was being oppressed because of their disobedience. If we want to turn over to Judges 6, we're going to be spending a great deal of time there. Judges chapter 6. And in this, chapter, and in this passage, we really get a good background of what's going on in Israel and why they're dealing with the problems they're dealing with. It says in verse 1, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. <clears throat> then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as, as far as Gaza. And leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in, as, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So in this book, the book of Judges, it presents us with many deliverers, or saviors, if you would, who would come in and rescue the people from the hands of their enemies. But it also shows out that once again, or once this had happened, they would just fall back into rebellion again and again. And the story of Gideon is the story of one of these deliverers. So let's get a, a pretty good background uh, real quick for this, uh, before we get into the life of Gideon. The time span of the book of Judges runs from the death of Joshua all the way up to the death of Samuel. Now, the book of Judges doesn't record Samuel as being a judge. It doesn't also record Eli as being a judge. But we can look in 1 Samuel and see that they both did, in fact, judge Israel. So the time period of the Judges runs between the deaths of these two. That's a total of about 346 years. That, uh, or actually, three, oh, it is 346 years, excuse me, um, that, that this book covers. And in this time, in these 346 years... Nearly one-third of all this time was spent in rebellion and disloyalty to God. It was 100 years, if you go through the book and, and add up all the years that it says that they spent in, in uh, rebellion, they equal up to 100 years that they, that they were um, fighting against God, more or less. But also, as book points out, that during this time, God was their king. This was before the time that they had set for themselves a, ma a, a king of ma on man. Wow, a king on earth, a physical king. This is before that time, and this is the time when God is, is their true king. And, and even though they don't always understand this, it is the fact. 
So Joshua's generation was one described as a generation that was courageous and was faithful. It was one that honored God. And we see a lot of great things happening in Joshua's generation. But we see a little bit later as each tribe starts to get their inheritance, they get their portion, their allegiances start to shift. They become focused more on the blessing and less on the giver. They become much more self-centered. They have to start cultivating this land that they've been given. They have to start creating their own lives in this land that they've been given. And they start to focus more on themselves and less on God. And they lived among the very people that God commanded them to run out of the land. They started to intermarry with these people. They started to adopt their religions. And they followed after them in their examples. Soon we see that it's not far that they are engulfed in a life of abomination and in a life of idolatry. And also we see that the old inhabitants of the land, not fearing the Israelites, they begin to grow in strength. They're not pressured anymore to be run out of, the, out of the country. So places like Syria, Philistia, Moab, Midian, these lands, they begin to plunder Israel. They begin to strike back at Israel. And the people start to abandon God. If you remember, God is their king. They are abandoning their king now. And the fact, and set up for themselves their own standards of conduct. They start to look at what God had set up for them, and they start to turn their backs on that. They start to put their own trust and their own faith in themselves. If we look over in Judges chapter 17, Judges chapter 17 and verse, well actually let's start in 18 verse 1. We read these sad, sad, sad lines. In those days there was no king in Israel. Same thing as wrote, wrote 19 verse 1. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. When we remember who their king was, we remember how sad that is. But Judges 17, 6 says it clearly. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How eerily this sounds like a description of today. Like a description of our lives in, in this century. Now one commentator writes about the book of Judges. He says the book of Judges is one of the saddest books in all the Bible, humanly speaking. Some have called it the book of failure. When we, proceed, when we read the last chapter of the preceding book, Joshua anticipates these, these continued blessings upon God's people as they move into the land and they claim their inheritance. We don't have to read very far into the book of Judges to see that things are not going very well. For the Israelites, they were in trouble because they didn't run out all of the old inhabitants. They didn't take the lessons that they learned and apply them to their lives. Each time God raised up a judge to deliver them, they responded shortly thereafter by falling right back into the same old ways, making the same mistakes of their fathers. They didn't sincerely love God. They didn't serve Him. They just used Him when things were rough. And when things were more tolerable, they abandoned Him again. They didn't deal with the problems that they had until they were incredibly desperate. They allowed family, community, and national problems to just run rampant and lead them down a path towards destruction from their enemies before they would ever seek solutions to these problems. In fact, if you want to look over in Judges chapter 2, in Judges chapter 2, we see what would certainly be the trailer for the movie of Judges. If we start reading in verse 7, if the book of Judges was a movie, there is no doubt that verses 7 through 19 would have to be its trailer. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. <clears throat> now Joshua was the son of Nun, 
The servant of the Lord died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the borders of his inheritance at Timnath, here in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaish. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers and despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said... As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, that they, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. That's the book in a nutshell. That really is the book in a nutshell. This is what's going to happen in this book. The people are going to turn their back on God and he's going to, to... send a retribution against them. In fact, this is a cycle that we see that they get stuck in. Let's look at it. They're going to have a rebellion that turns their back on God. He's going to send this retribution against them in some way. And when they are oppressed and they begin to cry out and turn back to Him and seek repentance, we see that God is going to save them. He is going to bring someone back to judge them and to provide restoration. The unfortunate part of this cycle is it starts all over again after the restoration. It just keeps going and going. The people rebel and they, and they repent. And they rebel and they repent. But today, I want to take a closer look at the judges. Not just the people of the land, but the judges of the land. They were not officials set to rule over the Israel's court system. Sometimes we, we confuse a judge of that time with a judge of our day. They were different. They were not officials and they actually had no civil authority. But rather, they were a sort of a spiritual authority sent from God. So during this time, as we already noted, the people were ruled by God as their king, but their local government was made up of their elders of each individual tribe. So the judges were simple. They were just deliverers who were raised up by God. They were raised up by God. They were directed by His Spirit to lead Israel to freedom from the oppression that they had brought upon themselves. And so what we want to do today is we want to look at one of these judges, and that is Gideon. Now Gideon's story comes right smack dab in the middle of Judges. He, was, he judged Israel in the time of 1191 to 1144 B.C. And as we look at Gideon, we see a lot of his story coming from um, Judges chapter 6. <coughs> so we'll start reading in, in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and said under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while the son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, 
you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Do not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to them, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk to me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Then the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat. And the unleavened bread and the fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he, was, that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it is still an Ophrah of the Abyssalites. Now in this passage we get a great, great deal of information about Gideon. Some of the smaller things we see is Gideon was the son of, Go- of Joash. He was an Abyssalite. We also read that he was from Ophrah, and he says that he is the weakest part of his tribe, Manasseh. It's led many to think that he is part of that western tribe of Manasseh. Now we see in this passage also that God had something that he saw in Gideon. Something that Gideon didn't see in himself. As he said, I'm the weakest of my clan, but God said, no, you mighty man of valor. Those are very different descriptions of the same person. So God saw, obviously, something that he could use in Gideon. And another thing that we see about Gideon is he had his doubts. He was very unsure about this. As he, he, makes the, he talks about how, you know, you've got the wrong guy. And then he says, well, show me a sign. Show me something to prove it to you. And so he goes through this demonstration to prove him. So what we can see about Gideon is that he did nothing short of fail when it came to believing But we also see that he was presented with evidence that developed his faith. We see that once he he believed, he demonstrated a repentance. He submitted himself to the will of God. And later we'll see that he becomes devoted to the Lord. And not only devoted to the Lord, but he becomes a leader and even a savior for his people. There are so many lessons. This one being uh, just, just one that we can learn from Gideon. Another lesson we can learn from Gideon is that Gideon shows us a lot about obedience. He shows us a whole lot about obedience. Right here, starting in the very next verse, in verses 25 through 31, we read about Gideon destroying the altars. It says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altars of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord, the Lord your God, on top of this rock, in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants 
and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. The second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And they went. And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has tore down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. At this time in, in, Israel's, uh, in Israel's past, idolatry was a huge, huge problem. It was very prevalent in Gideon's day. So this is the perfect opportunity for, for him to show God that he has loyalty to God and show his disgust of idol worship. And the fact is that sin that was such a big problem at that day is just as real and just as incredibly dangerous today, some 3,000 years later. And the thing is, for some, there may be no hope. <clears throat> there may be no hope at all. If we think of 2 Thessalonians 2, it talks about how deluding spirits can cause some to believe the lie. But consider Hosea 4. Hosea 4 and verse 17 also talks about how dangerous the sin of idolatry is. Hosea 4 and verse 17 says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Don't have anything to do with Ephraim. He is consumed by idols. So, so we see that idol worship is an incredibly, incredibly dangerous sin. And if Israel was going to have any hope, then idolatry had to be removed from, from their lives. So what about us? What about us today? Is there anything that comes between you and God? Maybe something that takes precedence over Him. Mark 10, verse 17 through 20, certainly sheds light on it. If we want to turn over there, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt down before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, but he had great possessions. Today... This passage certainly should strike a chord with a lot of us. Because maybe even compared to this person, we may even have greater possessions than what he had. And so many people today have fallen guilty of worshipping their materials. Worshipping what they have, whether it be their money or their cars or their houses. But what about our time? Do we place our time before Lord, before, before God? Do we place our comforts before God? It's certainly more comfortable to, to sit back and do nothing whenever we see sin going on. Do we say that I, I will offer my sacrifice to, the, to comfort as opposed to offering my sacrifice to God? And let me tell you, that comes a long way 
coming from me because I love comfortability. Maybe just made that word up. You come to my house, you will find me in in my sweatpants. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to to be, you know, feeling like I'm uncomfortable. I love to sit around and, and to do things that are comfortable, but that's not the life that God calls us to. There's certainly nothing wrong with sweatpants. But God doesn't call us to a life of just being comfortable. He calls us to a life where we may have to do things, like Gideon. We may have to step outside of our, of our comfort zone. You know, Gideon might have been tempted to say to God, you know what, I've gotten pretty cozy inside this wine press. The Midianites, they can't find me in here. I'm going to thresh all this wheat, and we're going to finally have something to eat because we're starving. God said, I know that's where you're comfortable, but that's not where I want you to stay. You need to come out of that comfort zone and do what I've asked you to do. So we too need to do the same thing. We need to make sure that we are not worshiping to the idols of maybe material or time use or comfort. If it is something that comes between you or stops you from harmonizing your will to God, then your only hope, your only hope is to remove that idol from your life. The same way that Gideon removed the idols from from his family's life. The next thing I want to focus on is Gideon's service record. In Judges 7 and verse 1 through 8, we read a little bit about Gideon and and the call that he's been sent, or has been sent, and now he's going to answer it. He's going to go do as God has called him to do, to save the Israelites. So starting in verse 1, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod. Of Herod. <coughs> Excuse me. So the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. Let Israel claim glory for itself against me saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So what we see here is Gideon has 32,000 men. 32,000 men, they've gone out, he's mustered this force, and they're going to go out to, to fight the Midianites. And God says, you got too many people. Now, I suspect the Midianites and the Amalekites and all their forces were quite a bit larger than 32,000 people. I suspect that they were probably a little bit outnumbered already, and God still says, no, you got too many people. And so they say to them, those who are afraid, this is the first test, the fear test, go home. If you're afraid, go home, because they had already seen how damaging fear can be. If we look back a couple hundred years, we're going, to find, we're going to find the spies coming back out of Canaan going, we can't do it. There is too much going on in there. there, there there's these, the, the, the inhabitants, they're giants. And, and No, no, there's no way. Let's just, let's just go somewhere else. Let's give up the land. And we see a whole generation dying in the wilderness because of fear. They're not going to make the same mistake twice. God says, get the fearful out of the bunch. Send the fearful home. And so now we're left with 10,000 men. And so the next thing that we're going to find, the next thing we're going to find is that, oh, excuse me, I apologize. So this this is direct uh, today. (laughs) Get ahead of myself. Today we need to have this same test in our lives. We need to take the fear that is in our lives and to remove it. As we read in Hebrews chapter 11, as Joe read for us in the scripture reading, the, the things 
that they did were things that had, were done without fear. To go against the sword, to conquer, to do all the things that it describes about them. They were things that they had to have done without fear. In fact, fear is in direct violation of faith. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 39, talk a little bit about this. It says, Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. This is Jesus talking. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me, he is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me, he is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You think Jesus is looking for some cowardly people to live a life like that, to fight, not just fight other people, to fight your own family. One of the scariest things to do is to go to your own family and say, there's something that's not right with the way you're living. It is so hard to do that. Jesus was calling for people who were, who were fearless, people who were going to put their fear and let that fear go home. And they weren't going to let that fear hold them back from being obedient to God. So likewise, now we have a second test. Because the 10,000 men were going to see are still too many people. Starting in verse 4, But Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog, you shall set apart as by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people got down on, the wa- on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other, other people... Every man go to his place. So now we see the water suckers. The water suckers are sent home. We see this third or the second test to, to, to weed out these people. And he says, I want you to send the guys who get down and suck water from the source. I want you to send them home. What we're left with is God's 300. Now, you have to wonder, why, why did God care whether you lapped water from your hand or you sucked it from the source. What, what, what's the difference there? Why does that really matter? Well, ultimately it doesn't matter because God decided it. That's what he wanted and that's what, what he did. But if we really step back and look at it from a, a strategic standpoint, there were some things that could be learned about those water suckers. You see, all the men, all the men were tired. All the men were thirsty. They've been out here preparing for battle. I don't imagine they just got up from resting and said, okay, it's battle day, and they grabbed all their gear and stepped out their doors. They would probably marched up to meet these, this enemy, and they've been training, and, and here they go. They're ready to go into battle, and they're wore out and tired, and he says, all right, let's go down and get a drink. And of these 10,000 men, 9,700 of them put their swords down or their spears down or their shields down and bow down on the ground and take their eyes and place them to the water and they can't see who's about to attack them. They don't have a weapon to defend themselves while the 300 keep their wit, 
keep their weapons, keep their shield, and draw the water up to themselves. Where they can still keep their eyes up, they can still look around, they have a much more strategic advantage. One thing we see is that those other men, they were careless. Careless in the presence of, our, of the enemy. What about us? Do we show self-control? Do we show, show caution in the presence of our enemy, the devil? When things get tough and we're tired, do we want to lay down our weapon? Maybe strip off a little bit of our armor so we can get some refreshment. So when we are tired and weak, maybe we want to try and do something that, it's like, I'll just take the easy path. I'll just take the path that leaves myself open to the wiles of the devil. That is certainly not what God was looking for in Gideon's day. And it's certainly not what God is looking for in our day. The victory that they won, those 300 men, the victory that God gave them was because of faith. The battle was won without any worldly weapons. And it was done by an incredibly smaller number than the forces had against them. It was done so they could not by any sort of delusion believe that they had somehow saved themselves. They could not go back and say, we pulled it out. It was tough and we were overwhelmed, but we won. They knew who had delivered them. Likewise today, we will not win on our own. There is nothing that can be said other than it would be a delusion to think that somehow we can win on our own. Even when we think of the church... The strength of the church doesn't lie in the numbers. It doesn't lie in the plans, in the goals. And that being said, we should, we should strive to see the church grow. We should make plans. But we should remember that it's our faith. It is our faith in God. And His ability is the only thing that, that gives us the victory. If we appeal to the physical side of man, as many have done, many have put their faith in the numbers, so we have to, we have, to have the biggest congregations there can possibly be. So we're going we're, we're to have a cook-off, or we're going to have a lock-in, or we're going to have a gymnasium, we're going to have X, Y, Z. What we're going to have is something that focuses on the physical side of man, and it works. You get a whole lot of physical people. You get the physical side of man, but that's not what God is interested in. He is looking for spiritual, spirituality. And so the same reason of their success in the past could be the same reason for our success today. The success that they had in the past, in Gideon's day, became because they were united. There was unity there. It says that they listened to the, only to the voice of their captain. There was obedience there. They followed the example that Gideon had set before them. Gideon was obedient to God, and they were obedient in following Gideon, Gideon's commands. And then they were faithful. Judges 7 verse 21 says, And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. They were faithful. There wasn't some men going, I don't know if this is going to work, and turned back. There wasn't some saying, well, I think this would work better and, and maybe try to do something else. They all did what they were told to do, united, faithfully. They stood firm. Then we even think of their battle cry. As it says in verse 18, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Today, Ephesians 6 verse 17 says, our sword, our sword of the Lord is the word of God. is his holy word. <clears throat> 
Isaiah 55 verse 11 says, so, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. His word is all sufficient. His word is always victorious. Or Romans 1 and verse 16. His word is the power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. <clears throat> Gideon stood out in a time of darkness for God's people. Gideon was a light. Are we a light today? Are we standing out today? Remember, God believed in Gideon, even when Gideon didn't believe in himself. He said, I'm the weakest of my clan. God said, no, you're a mighty man. You are a mighty man, and you will do great things for Israel. God wanted him to lead his army. God, likewise, wants each of you to be in his army. He looks at the youth of today. He desires for them to be trained up, to be training up for the future. He looks to the elderly. He expects for them to be teaching and to be preparing the youth. We all have crucial parts in this battle. Parts that we can't say, oh, well, that part doesn't really matter. Gideon couldn't say, well, but my one little part doesn't matter. None of those 300 men could say, uh, there's 299, that's, that's enough. It's, we're talking about God here. He really doesn't even need Gideon. God called for 300 people to fight that. 299 would have failed. Every part is important. So this morning, or excuse me, this afternoon, if you have not done so today, if you have not became a part of the army of the Lord, or if you have taken a, a, a stance that maybe, maybe somehow you don't have to join the battle, you can stand back and watch the battle from the background. Know that today, today is the time for you to enlist. Today is the time for you to get in the battle. And if you have, but maybe you've let fear Maybe fear holds you back or some other excuse keep you from service. You need to remember that there is no need for fear. Do not fear. For faith in God's word will bring victory. Faith in God's word will bring victory over sin and over death. So this afternoon, I would encourage you, if there is, if there is some way that we can help you today, something that we can do to help you realize your potential, for, for serving in the Lord's army, your abilities, or maybe you just somehow realize that you, you need to be a more fervent fighter and you haven't been doing that lately and you would like to make that right, whatever we can do this afternoon, I would encourage you, please come forward now as we stand and sing.